please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Before the episode, let me tell you about an amazing online boutique that I just know you're going to love. Save Boutique is a great place for clothes, accessories, and shoes. One of the great things about Save is that it's size inclusive. Most items Save offers are available in sizes from small to 3X, and they're looking into ways to offer even more sizing options. They also drop new items every week, so there's always new things to choose from. They even offer three buy now, pay later options, shop pay, Klarna, and Afterpay. One last thing, they're offering a discount to Dorky listeners. Just enter the code Dorky, that's D-O-O-R-K-E-Y, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount. I even put a link to Safe Boutique in the description notes of this episode that will take you directly there and automatically apply the discount. So check out the amazing clothes, accessories, and shoes Safe Boutique has to offer. You'll be so glad you did. Hello, this is Dorkey. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me and are important. I am absolutely not an expert or historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history, and I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past and I'd like to share what I've learned. And I hope you enjoy it. A quick moment of housekeeping. I need to issue a correction. The last episode, where I'm speaking with author Donna Rubin, I said that I thought Lady Jane Grey was a steward. After our conversation, I checked, and it turns out Lady Jane Grey was in fact not a steward. I was absolutely wrong about that. So I'm going to do some reading up and please be on the lookout for an episode about Lady Jane Grey in the near future. I'm going to start this episode by acknowledging the elephant in the room. I have a huge amount of respect and affection for the subject of this episode, John Adams. So if you detect that bias while listening, yep, guilty. I can't help the affection I have for John Adams, but I'm also not going to pretend like it's not there. Okay, now that I've gotten that out of the way, I can start the episode. John Adams was born October 30th, 1735. He was the oldest of three children. John's father was a farmer, but was also involved in local politics. He was a constable, selectman, and tax collector. John's father was also a deacon in the Congregational Church. John was sent to school at six, where he studied reading, arithmetic, as well as religion. But young John wasn't interested in that. 
he would rather spend his time hunting or fishing. John's parents were determined that he get a good education with the goal of John one day becoming a clergyman. They hired a tutor for John to help him get ready to take the entrance exam to the Braintree Latin School located in Braintree, Massachusetts. This tutor had a very different approach to teaching than the school John was attending at the time, and this changed his outlook on school and learning in general. John became an avid student and developed a love of books. Within a year, John was ready for the entrance exams at Harvard. He passed those and graduated from Harvard in 1755. After graduation, he taught grammar school while he decided what to do with the rest of his life. He realized that he didn't have the right temperament or frame of mind to be a clergyman and decided instead to become a lawyer. In 1756, he became an apprentice to learn law while continuing to teach. During this period, John met Abigail, who he would go on to marry and have six children with. After school, John moved to Boston and opened a law practice. It would be three years before he would win a case in front of a jury, but as we'll see, John Adams was nothing if not stubborn, and he persisted. John and Abigail would get married in 1764. Their first child, a daughter they would name Abigail, nicknamed Nabby, was born in 1765. A lot was going on politically during this time as well. What would one day be known as the U.S. was still British colonies, and there had been a war between England and France over territory in North America. This war, known in the U.S. as the French and Indian War, ended in 1763. That war cost England a lot of money, and so they imposed taxes on their American colonies to try to recover some of the money spent in this war. The first tax, known as the Stamp Act, was passed in 1765. The people who lived in the colonies weren't happy about this taxation because, as colonies, they didn't have a representative in England to speak for them in Parliament. The phrase, no taxation without representation, started floating around. England then passed the Townsend Acts in 1767, which taxed the sale of paper, tea, lead, and glass, which made the colonists even more angry. By 1768, England sent 4,000 soldiers to Boston to keep order. This is all a very short, very simplified, and incomplete explanation to the buildup to the American Revolution. Things between England and their American colonies were tense, to put it mildly, and they would only get more tense in the upcoming years. While all of this was going on in the background, John's perseverance with his legal practice was paying off. By 1770, he'd become one of the most successful lawyers in Boston, with some very prominent citizens as clients. In 1769, he defended the wealthy John Hancock in a wine-smuggling charge. Then, on the evening of March 5, 1770, things between the people of Boston and the British soldiers that were still there came to a head, and what came to be known as the Boston Massacre happened. Gathering at the Customs House, a group of Bostonians faced off with eight soldiers. Someone in the crowd hit one of the soldiers with a club, then a shot rang out. This led to more shots being fired. After all was said and done, six men were killed 
one was wounded. The people of Boston were outraged about this, and the soldiers were indicted. They faced the death penalty if found guilty at trial. But the British soldiers weren't able to find a lawyer, as no colonial lawyer would take on their defense. But John Adams agreed to defend them. Considering the circumstances, this was at a huge risk to his professional reputation, as well as his and his family's safety. But he believed in the right to a fair trial. I'm going to quote John Adams here about his decision to take on this case. The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers procured my anxiety enough. It was, however, one of the most gallant, generous, and manly actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. Judgment of death against those soldiers would have been as foul of stain upon this country as the executions of the Quakers or witches anciently. As the evidence was, the verdict of the jury was exactly right. In the end, John's defense was effective. Six of the soldiers were acquitted, and two were charged with manslaughter and branded on the hands, then released. None were executed. Three months after the trial ended, a seat opened in the Boston legislature, and John was first choice to fill that spot, beginning John's elected career. Tensions between England and the colonies continued to escalate, and the Tea Act was passed in 1773. Side note, the Tea Act wasn't a tax on tea. It was actually a law that made it so the colonists could only legally buy British tea. This infuriated the colonists, who responded by boarding the ship that held the British tea and throwing 342 chests of tea into the ocean in what would come to be known as the Boston Tea Party. The British response to the Boston Tea Party was to pass the Coercive Acts, which the colonists referred to as the Intolerable Acts. These acts not only closed the Boston Harbor, but basically took away what little form of self-governing Boston had. The Adams family decided to move out of Boston, but John continued to move in political circles. He moderated committees and a town meeting. The other colonies, realizing that what happened to Boston could happen in their own colonies, decided in the fall of 1774 to send delegates to Philadelphia to meet for the First Continental Congress. John Adams was named as one of the four delegates from Massachusetts. His cousin, Sam Adams, was named as a delegate, too. At this time, Sam was the more well-known of the two cousins. Sam Adams was the leader of the Sons of Liberty, the group behind the Boston Tea Party, and he also helped keep the area updated on current events through his Committee of Correspondence. The goals of the First Continental Congress were clear. Boycott British trade, outline their grievances, and petition the British king. If the petition wasn't successful, convene a Second Continental Congress. The First Continental Congress's petition was not successful, and so the Second Continental Congress met in May of 1775. This time spent in Philadelphia was the first time John had really had a chance to be out of Massachusetts and meet people from other colonies. He would serve the Continental Congress for four years, belonging to 90 committees, chairing 20 of them. 
This all kept him very busy, but he loved it, even though it kept him away from his home and family in Massachusetts. It was during this time, March 31st, 1776, that Abigail wrote John a letter asking that the members of the Continental Congress remember the ladies while they came up with how the new country they were building was to be ran. I'm going to quote part of this letter. I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And, by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Um... Spoilers for history, I guess, but the Continental Congress did not, in fact, remember the ladies. Women wouldn't even get the right to vote until the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920, almost 150 years after Abigail wrote that letter to John. But I say good on Abigail for being so far ahead of her time by even asking. Things had reached the irreconcilable differences point between England and their American colonies, and the Continental Congress named a committee to draft a document that would state the colonists' justification for the separation they were about to announce. This committee was made up of John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston. Roger and Robert aren't usually given credit for their part in writing the Declaration of Independence, but they were there too. It was during the writing of this document that the lifelong friendship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson would begin, but we'll get into that soon. The Declaration of Independence was soon finished being written, signed, and all-out Revolutionary War started. I promise I'm not trying to yada yada the American Revolution here but I'm not trying to stray too far from the topic, which is John Adams. John stayed in Philadelphia, where he helped pick out what the new country's flag would look like, and helped set up the Articles of Confederation, which was a short-lived predecessor to the system of government the U.S. has today. John was able to go home to spend time with Abigail and his children for a while. But this time was short, as he was quickly sent to France to serve as a commissioner to try to establish an alliance between the two countries. He took his oldest son, John Quincy, with him. Crossing the Atlantic was very dangerous in ordinary times, but during war was even more so. The trip took six weeks. When John and his son finally arrived in France, it was to find that Benjamin Franklin and Arthur Lee had already negotiated the agreement between the two countries. Being the pragmatic organizer he was, John decided to focus on the paperwork that needed attending to and the finances of the delegation. There were other diplomatic tasks that he carried out as well. However, John Adams was many things, but unfortunately, a good diplomat wasn't one of them. And I don't mean that as a slight against him. As much as I admire him, John was, due to his personality, to put it plainly, uniquely unsuited to be a diplomat. However, he was especially unsuited 
to be a diplomat in late 1770s France. I'm going to quote one of my sources here because it's put way better and clearer than I'd ever be able to. Quote, while Franklin, that shrewd and deceptively homespun man of the world, was a favorite of the French, John Adams was the out-of-place Yankee with his stern morals and lack of finesse. John was in France for a year and a half before Congress decided to name Benjamin Franklin as a single minister to the country. John Adams was made to return home, feeling like he had not been appreciated for his efforts. Here's a quote from John himself that speaks to how unappreciated he was feeling at the time. Quote, the essence of the whole will be that Dr. Franklin's electrical rod smote the earth and outsprung General Washington, that Franklin electricized him with his rod, and henceforth these two conducted all the policy, negotiation, legislation, and war. But none of this stopped John. When he got home to Massachusetts, he helped draft its constitution, which would influence the U.S. Constitution. John wasn't home for too long, though. In November of 1779, he was sent across the Atlantic again, but this time it was to look into negotiating terms of peace with Great Britain. The war was still on, and the two sides were still too far apart in their individual goals for a peace to be negotiated yet. And France wanted to be involved in these negotiations as well, which only complicated things. To make a long story short, John thought Franklin was too fond of the French to be an effective negotiator. And the French negotiator didn't like John and actually wrote the American Congress criticizing John as not being suited for the assignment. I mean, to be fair, John wasn't suited for this assignment, but wow. John was then sent to negotiate with the Dutch. The Netherlands wasn't eager to enter a trade agreement, and they were even less eager to grant the loan John asked for. But, as usual, John was persistent. His persistence, along with the American victory at Yorktown in 1781, finally convinced the Dutch to loan the Americans $2 million. So, with the Dutch loan, the military win, and the British surrender at Yorktown backing him up, John returned to Paris with much more leverage to negotiate a treaty with England than he had the last time he tried. In 1783, John Franklin and John Jay would sign the Treaty of Paris that would end the American War for Independence. John was finally able to be reunited with Abigail, but this reunion would happen in London, as John had been named the American minister to Great Britain. John was much more suited to the culture of England than France. He and Abigail lived in the American embassy, and John had an audience with King George III. Abigail was presented to the king's wife, Queen Charlotte. In 1784, Thomas Jefferson was sent to France to be a diplomat. He renewed his friendship with John and became friends with Abigail as well. This strong friendship would definitely be tested once they got back to the U.S., but at this time, they were absolute BFFs. After serving as a diplomat in Europe for almost a decade, it was time for John to return home. He came home to a country that regarded him very well and appreciated his service. This reception surprised and inspired John to run for the office of president. He ran against John Hancock, 
whose job title was now merchant instead of smuggler, and George Washington. George won, with John coming in second, which made him the vice president. It didn't take John long to realize that he absolutely hated it, as there wasn't really a whole lot for him to do. Here's a quote from him about it. Quote, My country, in its wisdom, contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. Washington had set up a cabinet. Thomas Jefferson as Secretary of State, Alexander Hamilton as Secretary of Treasury, Henry Knox as Secretary of War, and Edmund Randolph as Attorney General. Looking back at it, we tend to view the men who fought in the Revolution, the Founding Fathers, as these perfect men who were all but infallible. But those men had the same strengths and weaknesses that every human does. So it should come as no surprise that they all didn't always get along. Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, for example, didn't like each other at all, and their differences would lead to a partisan divide in the government. Hamilton's side would be known as the Federalists, while Jefferson's side were known as Democratic Republicans. This all came to a head when Washington decided to step down from the presidency after his second term ended. The Federalists nominated John Adams and Thomas Pickney as presidential candidates, and the Democratic Republicans chose Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. The way the elections worked at the time was whoever got the most votes was president. Whoever got the second most votes was vice president. This election was nasty. The Federalists were accusing the Democratic Republicans of things, and the Democratic Republicans were accusing the Federalists of things, and it wasn't all just about policy. Things got personal. Then the French tried to get involved, which angered one side, and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton were technically both Federalists, but they didn't get along. Instead, Hamilton supported Pickney over Adams, and he convinced the South Carolina electors to cast their second votes for their governor instead of Adams, which made things between him and John even worse. See, these guys were regular, messy humans, just like the rest of us. After all was said and done, John won the election. Jefferson came in second, making him the vice president. I feel like I need to address something. John becoming the second president of the United States was automatically at a handicap, as his administration came after Washington's. And, I mean, who could live up to that? John also made the mistake of not appointing new cabinet members, instead keeping the same members as Washington had appointed to his cabinet. One source put it very well, quote, Unfortunately, John's own nature was his biggest enemy. He could not bring about accord within the government, even within his own cabinet. He did not have confidence in public opinion, and his own Federalist Party was split. Almost immediately after taking office, John ran into problems with France, who was unhappy with the previous treaty. John sent a delegation to Paris to meet with the French foreign minister, Talleyrand. Talleyrand's people explained that in order to meet, Talleyrand first required a bribe of $250,000 for himself and a $12 million loan for France. Now, my understanding 
is that bribery was a thing in diplomatic circles at that time. But the amounts requested here were thought excessive, and once Americans learned of it, they wanted war. When John showed Congress the reports from the American diplomats, he replaced the names of the French agents with the letters X, Y, and Z, and the whole incident became known as the XYZ Affair. Congress didn't authorize war, but this did lead to the establishment of the Department of the Navy. Warships were built, and this led to what's known as the Quasi-War, where American and French ships fought on the ocean. All of this led to the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were supposed to keep any American from aiding the French, but in practice were anti-immigrant and even punished speech that was deemed subversive to national security with fines and prison terms. In the end, the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts empowered the Democratic Republicans as they were seen as defenders of liberty against governmental tyranny. During all this, John and Abigail moved into an only half-completed White House. I'll let Abigail tell you about it. Quote, we had not the least fence, yard, or other convenience without, and the great unfinished audience room I made a drawing room of, nor were there enough lusters or lamps, so candles were stuck here and there for light. But John and Abigail didn't have to put up with that for very long. The upcoming election of 1800 would become one of the most bitter that the nation would ever have. Yes, I know I said how bad the previous election was, but the election of 1800 was even worse. Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr were the opponents of Adams and his running mate Charles Pickney. The result of the election was tied. According to the rules of the Constitution at the time, a tie meant the decision was up to Congress. The Federalists were still in power in Congress, and they wanted to defeat Jefferson, so they supported Burr. Alexander Hamilton hated Burr, so even though Alexander didn't have an office at the time, he was pulling strings behind the scenes, trying to get Federalists to support Jefferson. Burr claimed to support Jefferson, but was actually hoping to win the office for himself. See? Messy. It took 36 ballots, but Jefferson was finally named the winner, with Burr as his vice president. As messy as that election was, the most important thing about it is the fact that power was peacefully handed over from the sitting president to his opponent. The experiment in democracy, even though it had just been put through the ringer, worked. After losing the election of 1800, John went home to his farm in Massachusetts. Abigail died in 1818 of typhoid fever, not living to see their son, John Quincy, become the sixth president. Two of their other sons would die of alcoholism, and their daughter, Nabby, died of breast cancer. After the bitter election of 1800, John and Jefferson's great friendship was no longer. It wasn't until after Jefferson left the White House after his second term as president that Dr. Benjamin Rush, another signer of the Declaration of Independence, managed to get these two men talking again. John and Jefferson resumed their friendship like it had never ended. They would die on the same day in 1826, on July 4th. This also happened to be the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson died first, but unaware that Jefferson had died, John's last words were, Thomas Jefferson survives. 
I don't think John Adams is nearly as appreciated as he should be. I know that Washington set a precedent by stepping down from his office after his second term, but I don't think John gets enough credit for the precedent he set by just accepting defeat after he lost the election of 1800 and going home. I think both of these acts show great character, and by setting the tone they did, Washington and Adams showed us that democracy can and does work. My husband and I have a tradition. Every July 4th, we watch the HBO miniseries, John Adams. If you haven't seen it, I 1000% recommend it. Paul Giamatti is John Adams and is amazing in it. And I don't care how many times we've seen it, I cry every year when we get to the part of the series where Abigail Adams dies. I'm going to quote a source that I think sums John Adams up really well. Quote, as a president, he avoided war using negotiation and the strength of convictions to secure peace with honor. He helped to nurture the strength of a government which had no example upon which to model itself. He was often irascible and irritable, but he was honest and steadfast as well. These qualities make John Adams one of my favorite founding fathers. Yes, even the irascible and irritable qualities. I can't explain it, but with John Adams, I somehow find those personality traits endearing. I'm going to end this with a John Adams quote. Posterity. You will never know how much it cost the present generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. Some of the sources I used for this episode, whitehouse.gov, history.com, the book John Adams, A Life from Beginning to End, and Wikipedia. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at dorkypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong, or let me know if there's something in particular in history that you'd like me to talk about. There's also a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast and an Instagram at Dorky Pod. Join them and be part of our growing community, but also to get extra tidbits about episode topics like facts and pictures. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow, but more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends. <laughs>